HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com. This week on Meet in 3, we're exploring the intersection between food, agriculture, and competition. Learn how a chicken raising contest in the 1940s led to the poultry industry we have today. And they were going to run a contest and try and develop what they would call the chicken tomorrow. We'll also venture into the world of agricultural video games, where a new set of tractors is making a lot of fans happy. The biggest addition to 19 was the John Deere's. That's what everyone was hyped for. And we pay a visit to a group of Indian restaurants that aren't on the friendliest of terms. Usually they wait for my restaurant, but after a long wait, they go to next door or downstairs. But this is how they do business. They completely copy whatever we do. Embrace your competitive spirit and be the first to listen to new Meet and 3 episodes by subscribing now. That's Meet Plus Sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, it's uh, What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and on the line with me today is Chris Jones. We're welcoming him back. Chris is a research engineer at the uh, IIHR, sorry about that, Chris, uh, Hydroscience and Engineering at the University of Iowa. He manages the university's real-time water quality sensor network that tracks conditions at 70 Iowa locations. His research focuses on nutrient and sediment transport and water monitoring in agricultural landscapes. He has previously worked at the Des Moines Waterworks and Iowa Soybean Association. He holds a PhD in chemistry from Montana State University. In other words, Chris Jones is the Mac Daddy of hydrologists in the state of Iowa, and this is his second time on what doesn't kill you food industry insights if you want to hear him talking about uh nutrient runoff from agricultural fields you can go back into the wayback machine to uh october of 19 of uh, 2018 1918 of 2018 and listen to that show that'd be like a nice little bookend to um these last two uh chris welcome back to the show thanks so much for coming on did you think i was insane that i didn't know who you were when i first reached out to you or i didn't indicate that i did well, I'm old and my memory is bad, so I don't uh, I don't criticize anybody. For <laughs> so you didn't things. remember me either. Is that what you're confessing <laughs> oh, I did. to? Yes, I did. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> 
Actually, you look about the same age as I am, possibly younger. So don't don't play the old the old card on me. <laughs> so you uh, let's jump right in here. So you wrote you you first of all, I want you to tell people about this blog that you write because it's really great. And when I interviewed you in October, I didn't really realize that that's what you were doing. I just somebody sent me your report on nutrient runoff, and that's what you know, prompted me to contact you, but you kept your light under a bushel and you didn't talk about your blog in that first interview. So now I want you to tell people right up front, how do they access this? Cause it was really, really interesting. And you've got some great material on there. So if you Google my name, Chris Jones, and then IIHR, you'll, you'll get to it. Uh, there's some bugs that they're constantly working out, but if, if you get to it and it looks like it's not there, it really is the, the links at the top work. Um, the, the web address is iihr.uiowa.edu slash cjones slash welcome slash. So I realize very few people are going to write that down. But again, if you yeah. if you Google my name and 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 just Iowa, even you'll you'll get to it pretty easily. Yeah. So anyway, so the the one that I uh, read uh, most recently, and I'm I'm trying to remember where I even came across this, but it was about uh, how hog farming affects Iowa's waterways. And as I mentioned in your intro, you are kind of the Mac Daddy of hydrology there. And among your many excellent points. Uh, you clarified something that most people do not recognize or realize, which is that pigs produce 3.5 times as much waste as humans. I'm talking manure. And so between that and all of the other major animal agriculture, which includes turkeys, uh, chickens, and some things you didn't include. You didn't include sheep, goats, or broilers, which I was surprised by. Um, but you included turkeys, chickens, and cattle, and dairy, um, all of which, you know, produce their own special quantities of waste. But in any case, the whole point of the whole aggregation of this manure computation that you did basically created an absolutely astonishing uh, figure that correlates to the equivalent of human population. So so talk to us about that equation that you formulated and what you found. Well, um, nothing I did here was real complicated. I, I got literature values for the amount of waste that the various animals generate. And so, as you say, hogs generate about 3.5 times as much solid matter as a, as a human being, although they generate five times as much phosphorus and three times as much nitrogen, and or they excrete oh, that much. And and the reason is is because you know they're growing really fast, and so a hog, um, a feeder a feeder pig is about the same size as a human being, but you know it's it's gaining weight so rapidly that you know they're eating a lot and they're excreting a lot. And so consequently, um, the waste that they generate is far more than a person. Now, hogs are, are really sort of dwarfed by dairy cows. Dairy cows are kind of the, the kings of waste generation. And uh, Really? Uh, yeah. And, and uh, then below them is beef cattle. And then hogs. And then, then the laying chickens. And laying chickens, of course, are much smaller than a hog, but... Um, but we have quite a lot of them. We in Iowa, Iowa is the number one uh, 
egg-producing state. We have 80 million uh, chickens laying eggs every day. Jeez. And so all these animals, um, you know, produce quite a lot of waste for sure, yeah. And there's no, what's always fascinated me about this uh, is that there are literally no regulations about how to dispose of animal waste. I mean, when I was writing my book about, um, you know, meat, the meat industry, like that just blew my mind. So, you know, all of these people who grow these animals, um, you know, have to individually manage what to do with the waste. And when you're talking about somebody who has, I don't know, you know, 20, say 5,000 hogs or 10,000 hogs, which is not an unreasonable number in an Iowa concentrated animal feeding operation. You're talking about the equivalent of actually 30,000 people plus uh, the amount of waste that they produced. And then, but there's no regulation that says that it has to be uh, taken through any kind of treatment. Isn't that right? There's no so wastewater right. treatment plan no, for animal no agriculture in general, correct? So, so there's no treatment requirements. That's correct. Right. There are some limitations uh, about applying manure in the wintertime. Um, and so, of course, it's cold here in Iowa in the winter. And so they can't uh, apply it to snow or frozen ground during certain months. And mm-hmm. these... Uh, these confined feeding operations are required to have what's called manure management plans, um, mm-hmm. where they uh, devise a strategy for applying the, the manure to fields that are, you know, cropped to corn and soybean. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to uh, say that manure is a bad fertilizer here. It's, it's not. And, you know, we have this perception that organic farming is good and of course organic farmers use manure the problem we have in iowa is that in many of these areas where we have a real high density of livestock we also sell just as much commercial fertilizer and so Uh that relates back to um, some issues with managing manure Um, it's very expensive to haul it so a farmer can only haul manure about five miles before it becomes economically prohibitive. If they've got to haul it more than that, they might as well buy commercial fertilizer. And then the other thing is uh, the time windows to apply manure are pretty short. And so um, if the pit, uh, so so say a hog confinement generally has a, a concrete pit below where the hogs are are living and the manure and the urine drops down into the pit. If that pit fills up more rapidly than what they expect, then they got to get rid of that manure because then it provide, uh, presents a risk to the animals and the and the workers that work in there. And so they got to get it out of there. And so they might have to apply it, say, early in the fall before um, temperatures are are adequately low uh, when you apply manure and it, it's too warm out then the nitrogen is generally lost and so when that happens of course the mm. farmer knows that and he's going to come back with some commercial fertilizer or more manure right and so the, right. the real issue here is uh, not that manure is a bad fertilizer it's it's not it's just that the management is so much more complicated than it is for 
uh, commercial chemical fertilizers. Sure. That makes sense. Now, you had these fantastic maps on that blog. And um, it was there that sort of the, the problems that farmers face in disposing or managing waste from, you know, large-scale confinement uh, was, was writ large. So, so for example, you showed, you, you, you drew out, like, where these concentrated air, uh, animal feeding operations are, and then put the equivalent of human population, like maybe Wichita, Kansas, or, or Jap- Osaka, right. Japan. Like, talk about what we're looking at here from, you know, give people a picture that they can see in their minds of, like, what we're really talking about is, like, untreated waste, the equivalent of, is going where? So that map that you referred to is a, a map of the 56... 56- uh, Huck 8 watersheds in, in Iowa. And so a Huck 8 watershed is uh, a designation that we give to areas that are draining to a point. And a Huck 8 watershed would be on the order of, oh, maybe um, 5,000 square miles, M- maybe not that much. Uh, but, you know, you can imagine Iowa, we have 56 of them. And so maybe more like a thousand square miles. And so mm-hmm. I, uh, that map is, is all the Huck 8 watersheds. And then I was able to drive how many animals, how many livestock animals were in each of those watersheds. And then I also uh, was able to drive how many people lived in those watersheds. And then I, I got the, uh, human equivalent, uh, for waste, for for fecal waste from the livestock animals, and I just added that to the actual human population, and and for the whole state, we would have 134 million people. 134 and, and, million people in the state of Iowa, which actually has a popu- a human population of what? It's like three million. Three. <laughs> three million. Yeah. So 134 million people. That's like um. You know, that's, uh, you know, 10 times, more than 10 times the number of people who live in Manhattan, for example. Or, you know, like, all, I so, mean, it's yeah, just, it, it's, we would it's be, breathtaking. If these were truly all people, we would be the 10th most populous country in the world. In the world, right. So, in you know, world, more than more India. In I mean, what would you, you made it equivalent to Bangladesh, I think it was? Well, that would be our density, yes. Our density would be similar yeah. to Bangladesh, but... In terms of population, we would be about the size of either Mexico or Russia, give or take. Holy smokes! I mean, people, are we listening to this? Like, this is unbelievable. Um, I, you know, for me, that just like made the whole thing explode in my brain in a very concrete way to be thinking about it in those terms. So I really, I really thought it was great the way you did that. Now. We talked a little bit about how um, waste management plans are required for concentrated animal feeding operations and that there's only a small window of time for people in which to apply some of that waste to local fields uh, for fertilizer. And I think everybody would agree manure is a great fertilizer, just maybe not in the quantities that we're producing. So, for example, if you have 134 million people's worth of manure to deal with on a statewide basis, there is no way, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't see any way that you can apply that much manure even to a corn and soy and row crop heavy state like Iowa. Am I right in that? 
What I mean, so what's well, happening here? Clearly, some farmers are are managing it. I mean, I, I can't, uh, I can't, I don't want to say it's impossible. Uh, again, the, the couple of the issues here are, you know, Iowa. If you've never been here, the weather here is is very extreme, and so it's very hot and humid and rainy in the summer, and in the winter it's very cold and snowy, and it can change seasons very rapidly. And so the corn is planted, say, around April 15th in a good year. And then they harvest it, say, October 1st. And so, you know, to get the manure out there, you know, the corn can't be in the field because if it was, you would damage the corn with the equipment. Right. So the manure has got to be applied, you know, in a, a fairly brief period in the fall, uh, after the soil temperature declines below 50 degrees, or in the spring before planting. Now, problem in the spring is it can be quite wet here, and this year it's very wet. And you've maybe heard right. about the floods. And yeah, we're going to talk about those. So, yeah. So a lot of times the spring work or spring application isn't an option, and so that one of the issues with the manure again is the time windows. The other issue is. Uh, in terms of water quality is, you know, we see that these counties that have high densities of livestock also, there's a lot of commercial fertilizer being sold. And the, the reasons for that are, are sort of complicated. And, you know, I would direct you to my blog for detailed explanations. But um, these are the things that make it uh, a problem, I guess I would say. And so... Mm -hmm. You know, I, I don't want to say that it's impossible to manage this. I'm, I'm not saying that. But, you know, if, if a farmer has thousands of animals, which many of them do, as, as you alluded to, um, you know, he, when he's got a chance to get that manure out there, he's got to get busy. And, you know, if the weather complicates that, then, you know, then we have a problem. Now, um, Chris, I want to talk for a second about how effective that management system is. I mean, you've pointed out the obvious problem with, you know, seasonal disruption, like maybe it's not a good time to do it. It's either too hot, too cold. You have snow, it's too wet. I mean, how, how much, how, it's clear that, let me start over. It's clear that this particular method of applying a lot of manure to fields has had an impact on water quality in the state of Iowa and not in a good way. So it's not the best way of managing waste. What, in your opinion, like say there was a perfect solution here, what, like say the company or the integrator, you know, the, the big kahunas who are basically contracting all these farms and farmers to produce these animals, what if they came in with some money and they helped farmers figure out uh, a technology with which to um, neutralize all of this manure. What would that technology look like, do you think? Well, there's manure digesters, for example, uh, uh -huh. that make the, the manure drier and more easily, more, more easy to handle and more easily trans, transported from one place to another. Uh, that, that's one uh, possibility. Um, <clears throat> You know, I, I think the overall issue here is, um, 
you know, we, we, we're looking at water quality from a, from a watershed perspective. And so right. a watershed, of course, is an area draining to a common point. And, you know, how many animals uh, can a watershed endure and, um, and still allow us to reach our water quality objectives? And so the manure, the manure management plans, I, I don't want to say they're ineffective. I, I think in some cases they are. But um, one of the issues we have here in Iowa, and it's very controversial, is the way we permit these livestock facilities. And so we don't really restrict <laughs> the, the permitting process really does not restrict uh, the construction of these things, uh, you know, on a spatial basis, not very much anyway. And so consequently, we have some watersheds that are, you know, very, very high density um, livestock watersheds. And so, you know, in my mind, if we if we uh, want to improve water quality here, we got to be able to manage these nutrients at the regional scale, or at least the watershed scale. And the way we, the system we have now with the, with the livestock does not allow us to do that. Right, right. So you would advocate for building biodigesters, which some companies do. I mean, I toured one in at a Cargill facility in Colorado that cost them $22 million to build. I think that's what they told me. Um, and it manages very effectively the all of the waste that comes out of a processing plant, uh, and then they, you know, return the sludge can be used for, uh, I don't know what, doesn't it's neutralized, and then the water is returned to the Colorado River. So would that be something that you would see as a way of um, reducing the harm that some of these more concentrated areas present to a watershed? Would that be an, sure, an option, sure. do you think, that would be um, socially responsible yeah. as well as environmentally responsible? So, yeah, of course. And, you know, in Europe, um, so Denmark, for example, has um, nearly as many hogs as, as Iowa has, at least the density yeah. is, is similar. And um, they manage it a little better and they, they do have digesters and they do have other limitations about nutrient application. But as you said, this uh, facility you saw in Colorado was $22 million, I think was uh, the number that you mentioned. And so unless you have somebody, something to compel people to do that, you know, no one's going to invest that kind of money, um, you know, in something that, you know, they don't have to, don't have to do. I mean, we just know that. And so I always say farmers are no different than the rest of us. You know, we're not going to <laughs> spend money on something we probably don't have to spend money on. And so Well, of course. Uh, I mean, and actually it's not even feasible for a farmer to come close no. to uh, managing um that kind of waste production. It's because they couldn't possibly ever in a million years produce a biodigester even on a small scale uh that would manage the waste of 10,000 pigs or something. I mean, it's not even it's not even fair to ask a farmer who operates on tiny margins anyway um to address that. I fully believe that it's the integrator's responsibility. It's the, it's the people who are deriving the profit off of uh the farmers and off of the animals that should be responsible for this. But that's another discussion. We're going to have to take a quick break um Chris, so don't go anywhere. Um we'll be right back with um are you a professor? Do we call you doctor or professor? 
<laughs> I'm a doctor, but I'm not a professor. I'm an adjunct professor. So I see. I, he is Dr. Chris Jones from Iowa University. And we're going to be talking some more about water quality uh, and agriculture uh, right after this short break. So stay tuned. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kottbalk Cave-Age cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Mon, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Dave Arnold, and I'm the host of Cooking Issues here on Heritage Radio Network. Every week, I answer listeners' questions on the latest innovative techniques, equipment, and ingredients in the food world. Have a question about hot-rodding your oven to make great pizza? Give us a call. Hydrocolloid, sous vide, liquid nitrogen? No problem. You can find Cooking Issues wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Okay, we're right back. And uh, it is uh, with great pleasure that I uh, welcome Dr. Chris Jones back to my program. He was here in October. If you want to read, uh, learn about the paper he wrote about nutrient runoff, which um, actually addresses a lot of this because we're talking about spraying manure onto fields as a technique for managing waste from concentrated animal feeding operations. But there's also um, the the problems with nutrient runoff from just using regular old um, you know dried fertilizer that you buy at great expense from places like. Uh, Dow DuPont and and Bayer, uh, formerly known as Monsanto. But I want to I want to go on to your next blog uh, on that blog sheet, which was called Ransom, which I mean, totally subversive, Chris. I mean, really, you 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 don't pull any punches on this one. And so, uh, to to illustrate that point, I, I want to make um, ransom. You're talking about row crops. Let's let me let me just divide this program. So, in the first part of the program, we talked about hog waste or animal waste and how to manage that. Now we're going to talk about um, <clears throat> you know waste that flows off of fields and row crops, corn and soy specifically in um, in Iowa. And so, in this quote, uh, you say the following: In my view, water quality is taken hostage. By this old school policy, which I'm going to ask you to uh, explain, while at the same time, we do little to address the underlying methods and economics of crop production that drive the pollution problem in the first place. And the beneficiaries of low commodity prices and maximum acres or max acres, as you call them, are relieved of any responsibility for degraded water quality. And I just want to say that it looks to me like, you know, the people who are the max acres, for lack of a better term, are basically getting away with the same stuff that these big integrators in the animal sector are getting away with, which is not managing their pollution, whether it's, you know, fertilizer runoff or pesticide runoff or whether it's animal waste runoff. So that's just an aside. So first I want you to tell people what you mean by the old school policy, since I didn't obviously quote the whole thing, and then explain this economic trap that row crop farmers are forced into? Because I, I, I thought that was a very cogent explanation of how that whole thing works. So firstly, I want to say, there's, I don't mean to imply that there's some big 
conspiracy going on here on this. There's not. It's oh, I'm happy to imply that. I will gladly imply that. You you are absolved. Yeah. <laughs> it, it just is. Uh, it's just the way things have evolved. And so the history yeah. of cons- farm conservation in the United States is that the taxpayer has been a participant in it, and. And so uh, I have another paper. We looked at this, and so every person that's ever lived in the United States over the last hundred years has has contributed about seven hundred to a thousand dollars towards farm conservation. And you know, this policy goes back to the Henry Wallace days. in the 1930s and the, the beginning of the Soil Conservation Service. And we, we've rationalized this whole thing within the context that the farmers are taking private actions that benefit the public. And so the public should have skin in the game on this. And I don't disagree with that. No, me either. Um, you know, when, a, when farmers do various conservation practices, um, you know they're they're not going to get done. It's this is private property, and absent some form of regulation, it's not going to happen unless there's public participation. So the way this has evolved over the the last you know almost a century now, and and especially over the last forty or fifty years, is that um, you know these farmers have gotten bigger and gotten more efficient. You know that a lot of people that are not farming have benefited from this increased efficiency. And uh, those people, we've certainly not asked very much of them in terms of, um, you know, contributing to farm conservation. And, you know, these are corporations, of course, and and investors. And so uh, we've sort of put the, asked the farmer to shoulder the burden for all this uh, well, at the same time, you know, he doesn't really, uh, he or she does not really uh, benefit the way they should, in my view, from this increased producti- productivity. And so what we tell mm-hmm. people is, okay, if you want good water quality, you've got to pay for it. We, we've got to pay for it. And I think you can make an argument. As I said, that's that's the history of, of policy in the United States. And so I think you can make an argument that that's the way to go. But the situation we have now is that the public also is um, indemnifying these operations through publicly supported crop insurance. And so when we have that situation, we have acres across the United States, maybe not as much in Iowa as in other places, but that should not be farmed. And so it incentivizes production on the fringes of the Corn Belt, uh, where the weather is much more dicey, um, where the soils aren't as good. And when we incentivize production in these areas, then that increases um, the supply of commodities in the country and drives the price down. Right. So that hurts the farmer and, and you know, he gets caught in this, this spiral uh, where he produces more, but he gets less less uh, money per bushel. And so I I think we just have uh, a situation here where there's some contradictions in the system, where we're being asked to uh, pay to help mitigate 
the pollution that results from these activities at the same time we're being asked to insure these activities. Yeah. And I just don't think that's a good model for our country. Yes, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I thought that was a really, really a great point. Um, I mean, because really, if people read the blog, you'll see that the that the productivity of fields has gone from like 92 bushels an acre to 194 bushels an acre or some statistic similar to that, I believe. Um, and as you point out that in a way, uh, despite being, you know, a great advance in, in sort of agricultural technology has also guaranteed that the price of that product has bottomed. And uh, certainly we see that in the tremendous fluctuations in price in the corn market um, and to some extent in the soy market. And that's not even counting what's happened with the tariffs and everything. So not to make people too, (laughs) not to get too complicated, especially about something I barely understand myself. But what, what do you, okay. So, so having said that this system is not good, which is that we, first we indemnify people. In other words, we hold them uh, blameless for doing something that pollutes, and then we uh, subsidize them for polluting, right? Isn't that the assess- essence of your argument? Have I got that right? I mean, right? I, I don't think, yeah, there's any argument to that, that yeah, we do that. Okay. So what would instead be uh, a way, and I know this is kind of unfair to ask you this question, but I mean, you do obviously think about it a lot. What would be a way to provide incentives for farmers to undertake the kind of really quite costly and labor-intensive measures that they would need to take in order to, um, you know, at least um, minimize uh, the nutrient runoff, which is essentially creating the problems that we see in Lake Erie, in the dead zone in the Gulf, in the Chesapeake Bay, and, you know, all the other water tables around the country that are suffering from uh, excessive nutrient overflow. So people ask me, you know, when I do my presentations, well, what is so, what is the solution? And, and I, I oftentimes just say, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know what the solution is. I I know there is some low-hanging fruit out there that we could uh, try to pick that to improve water quality, and one of the things is farming in floodplains. And so we have about 250,000 acres, I think, in Iowa that are in that are farmed to corn and soybean that are in the two-year floodplain. So uh-huh. every other year, you know, those inputs gone to the Gulf of Mexico. So how could we get out of these two-year floodplains? I think that would be a good policy uh, thing we could look at. Um, we have other things that are that we've known for a long, long time that are not very environmentally sound practices. And, and here in Iowa, and of course this is a weather-related thing, we have a fall tillage. Uh, we know that that is not the smartest thing to do. And if we... If we did that, we could. Uh, if we could get rid of that, we would have some improvements. If we were able to uh, better manage our manure, as I've said, and mm-hmm. uh, and more accurately take credit for the nutrient content in the manure that's being applied to fields, I think that that would be a, a real strong step for us. Um, and then, you know, all of this is really rooted into federal farm policy, and so. People ask what they what can they do, and you know everything these farmers do, especially in Iowa, is very strongly related to federal farm policy. And so, right, we really need a bigger variety of crops 
and we know this corn soybean system is is what we call the leaky system. We know it's difficult to make it perform in a way that's going to give us the environmental outcomes that we want. And so we need a, a bigger variety of crops, but a farmer just can't decide, okay, I'm going to plant oats. He's got to have some place to sell sell that um, product that he grows. Yep. And, you know, how do we do that? Well, we incentivize it through federal farm policy. And so, for example, uh, in Iowa, about half of our corn goes to make, make ethanol for fuel. And so... Right. Um, you know, why do we have an ethanol industry? Well, we have an ethanol industry because federal federal policy incentivized that activity through the renewable fuel standard and, and other things. And, you know, why do cows eat corn now? Well, again, that some of that is related to federal policy. And so we have these various federal policies that have had environmental consequences that we didn't expect. Mm-hmm. And so we know that when we have diversity on the landscape, that that's a good thing. And so right. here in Iowa, we the native ecosystem here was wetlands and and prairie. That there were hundreds and hundreds of perennial species across the landscape, and we've taken that and we've condensed it down to two species, which are are just which are annuals, corn and soy, and so. Yeah. To think that we're going to get the environmental outcomes that we want uh, from that system, I think uh, sometimes we're not very honest with ourselves. (laughs) You are so nice to say it that way. (laughs) Um, Chris, let's talk for a minute because I I don't want to go too long here and take up too much of your time. Mm -hmm. But let's talk for a minute about the bomb cyclone um, because – You know, much, you know, Nebraska, Missouri, Kansas, Iowa, you know, a lot of those states have exactly what you just described, which is cropland, which is below, uh, lying in a floodplain. And I wanted to ask you what the impact of this, you know, tremendous flooding that we have seen, perhaps many, perhaps some Americans have not been paying attention, but I have, um, you know, devastating, catastrophic flooding. Uh, and it ain't over yet. Apparently, flood season hasn't even started, um, at least for some of those states. What, what do you think the impacts of that flooding are going to be going forward in the coming year? Will people be able to plant, for example? Um, so I, I first I would say I'm not an authority on the bomb cyclone or or weather in general, although I look at weather data a lot. I suspect that... Um, a lot of the farmers that are farming in the Missouri River floodplain will not be able to plant. Um, right. That's sort of what I'm hearing. And, um, you know, it's been wet here for quite a while now. And so not only do we have um, these issues of floods, but these floods are coming on top of a, a soil that was already pretty wet. And so it's it's tough to plant. Um, a lot of people think the big risk here is drought. It's not. It's the big risk here is that it will be too wet. And so uh-huh. um, I think in 2011, when there was a, a large Missouri River flood, a lot of those fields over there were covered with sand and and some other materials that prevented uh, planting. And so I think there's going to be 
going to be some of those issues uh, this year for sure. Um, and so it, it is very tragic what's happening over there. Um, but, you know, I, I think to say this is, you know, because of this bomb cyclone, this once-in-a-lifetime event, I think is sort of incorrect. We've we've totally modified the Missouri River Basin, and so, um, you know, floods have been happening there for thousands and thousands of years, and what's new is that we're in the floodplain trying to do stuff. And yeah. What about the, I mean, I know you're not a soil chemist, but I always wonder, like, after a big flood, for instance, in upstate New York, um, you know, some years back, we had Hurricane Irene, and it happened right at the end of the summer, just as farmers were about to harvest, and so therefore, uh, because the floodwaters were contaminated with, you know, all kinds of things, um, they had to leave all those crops in the field, and there was obviously a tremendous economic loss. What what when the when the, when the Missouri River or any river floods into um, corn and soy fields or any you know any food growing fields, what is the impact of that water on the soil? Like, do do they have to remediate the soil after the floodwaters recede? Um, does it have an impact on the groundwater table, for example? Um, can you explain a little bit of that just before we let you go? Well, um, it's true that contaminated soil can be a factor for vegetable crops. I, I don't hear that too much in terms of corn and soy. It's possible. Uh, but, you know, if that is an issue, farmers certainly have an outlet here and that they can grow corn for ethanol, and we don't really care what's right. what's in that corn. Um, and so um, the the big issue with wet soil uh, in Iowa is that when they drive this equipment on it, it, it becomes compacted. And ah. once once the soil is compacted, then it really doesn't support crop growth very well. And so farmers here are really terrified of com- soil compaction. And, um, and so that's one of the issues we have. And then I, in the Missouri River, for example, I mean, that is such a huge flood that uh, and it's, you know, the Missouri River watershed is a very sparsely populated area of our country. Uh, you know, certainly we would get some human contamination of the soils, but probably not enough to really uh, make a big difference uh, and cause mm-hmm. a concern on crop production here. So that's my views that's on encouraging. that. But the fact is, is that probably, I mean, it sounds to me like what you're saying is that at least in some parts of the country, uh, farms, farmers who would normally, you know, be putting in a new crop around mid mid to late April are not going to be able to do that. Is that is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. And again, you know, they'll just have to examine their fields after the water recedes and see what the condition is and. Uh, certainly, um, you know, some dry weather would be would be desirable here going forward if they're going to get these these areas cropped. And you know, soybeans here we don't generally plant till um, towards the end of May. And so, you know, if they planned on planting corn, uh, perhaps if they can't get the corn in early enough those fields that were planned for corn could be planted to soybeans and, and maybe some other things like alfalfa. But, right. 
but yeah, I think right now they're still trying to sort of get their wits before they get make any decisions like that. Yeah. Well, it's just it's a it's a heartbreaking story. I mean, the whole <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> the catastrophic flooding. You know, people just I don't think you know those of us who are lucky enough to live on the coasts really mm-hmm. cannot grasp the magnitude of this. But if you look at photographs, and I know you have of you know mm-hmm. animals and sheds and silos and equipment and you know just underwater and totally ruined, it's just you know it really brings tears to your eyes. Yeah, it's, it's a, a hard, it's a hard life, and sure. you feel real awful for these people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's very tragic. You're correct. So, Chris, um, I'm going to let you go now, but I want you to just remind people of where they can read these great blogs because it really is, you know, a real window into <clears throat> into how it all actually works, and that's what I like to know. I like to dig into the mechanics of things. You know, how do things actually work? And I I so appreciate you bringing up sort of the strategies of farm uh, policy and where we're going wrong and, you know, what could be done to correct it. Because, I mean, the the clock is ticking. We're running out of time to fix it. So um, So tell people about your blog. I just would say I'm trying to bring bring stuff to the – to the everyday person. I'm trying to translate the science and the policy behind all these things and make it digestible to everybody. And so the blog is, uh, again, if you just Google my name, Chris Jones and, and, and Iowa or IIHR, uh, you should be able to find it pretty easily. So That's great. Terrific. Thank you so much for spending the time with me today and for reading through my questions and making sure I wasn't going off on a wrong on a wild goose chase. (laughs) My pleasure. And stay in touch. I'll be, I'll be keeping my eye on the blog. I hope you'll come back and join me again soon. All right. Very good. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot, Chris. And thank you to my sponsor and thanks so much to my listeners for tuning in. Really appreciate your support. Don't forget to support Heritage Radio Network. This is our 10th year. This is my 10th year. Um, We got lots and lots of cool stuff going on. Uh, Check out the website and, um, you know, donate. Give us some money. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening and take care. We'll be talking next week. Bye-bye for now. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.